OTB Rugby. One of the best wingers in the world. One of the best Irish wingers of all time. He's done it. Of course he can do it again. It's just very, very important to be able to exit well against big teams and get down its territory game. Subscribe to the Rugby Stream on the OTB Sports app now. Off the ball, daily. Now then, you're very welcome back. So Wimbledon 2023 is upon us. It is that time of year. Novak Djokovic, fresh from winning at Roland Garros and in Australia as well, has a calendar Grand Slam season in his sights. He is going for a fifth Wimbledon title in a row. It would be his eighth in total, which would move level with uh, Roger Federer. And uh, Djokovic has not been beaten at Wimbledon since 2016. It would also move him to 24 Grand Slams total and therefore level with Margaret Court. Uh, in the women's game, the elder stateswoman is very much 43-year-old uh, Venus Williams beaten today. Uh, there are a trio of contenders. Defending champion is Elena Rybankina. We have Polish top seed Iga Sviantek and second seed Arena Sabalenka is back after the ban on Russian and Belarusian athletes uh, last year. Uh, so, very happy to say, Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine is with us. Good evening. Hello. Hi there. How's it going? Great. I presume you've been to Wimbledon, have you? I have. This is the first year I haven't gone in quite a while. Uh, obviously, not counting the year that they did not put it on. But yeah, usually I'm in London this time of year. This time I emphasized going to Paris ahead of London. And I have to say, I have major FOMO right now. Yes, strawberries and cream at home, glass of pims, just to feel like you're there. It lives up to expectation, I would think it's fair to say. Uh, undoubtedly. Uh, whether you are a grass court aficionado, whether you love the British sporting scene, which not everybody does, it's sort of hard not to be reverential, at the very least, about just the environs. The place itself is just so magnificent um, and beautiful. And, you know, the the special things about the tournament, the sort of hushed, crowd experience obviously the the uniforms that are mandatory for the all-white uh outfits on the players with very little other colors or or logos really do enhance the experience that you're watching something very sort of profound i mean that is the funny thing for the most iconic venue is none of these players are growing up on grass in the main no absolutely not and the season is super short so if anything this is went from being the surface where three out of the four majors were contended on grass uh, back in the day. The U.S. Open at Forest Hills was on grass. Kuyong in Australia hosted the Australian Open. This is after the Australian Open became a real major, which is why, you know, Margaret Court's record of 24 slams is very dubious because she won most of those at the Australian Open before it was really a, a considered a, an actual major tournament. But that was, in fact, on grass. And now it's gone from being two-thirds Oh, sorry, three quarters of the season to simply, you know, a very, very truncated quarter, less than 25%, certainly in terms of total tournaments. They don't have a Masters 1000 level at that surface. And, you know, as you said, very few people grow up even getting a chance to set foot on it, much less making it their favorite surface. So it makes for some interesting results and some interesting, you know, tactics to see who brings their best tennis to this to this tournament. Brings us nicely to Djokovic. And he's, he's in that sweet spot that happens late in any big career where any win is another major milestone. And he's won six of his last eight majors at 36 years of age. I think it's fair to say he's won the war against Nadal and Federer in terms of uh, Grand Slam numbers, realistically. I was reading, he's, he's very much at this stage cut back on his schedule at tour level in recent years. He, he is Grand Slam focused and... 
the man to beat is is the headline. To what extent? What what is the gap here? Because we all had high hopes for um, Carlos Alcaraz at um, the French, and he's won at Queens, won the warm up tournament at Queens, Alcaraz. But uh, he seemed to say the occasion got to him a touch against Djokovic in the semi final. It was insane going into that match that Alcaraz was the favorite. Obviously, he had had a meteoric rise lifting the trophy last year in New York as the U.S. Open champion. But anybody who favored Alcaraz, even on his preferred surface of clay against Djokovic, somebody who at the time had 22 majors, is sort of insane. Um, I have to hope that if the two of them clash again in this tournament, even though the, the surface obviously favors Djokovic, given his track record and past performance. But I have to hope that at least some of that experience uh, earlier this spring in Paris would have benefited Alcaraz, because not only did Alcaraz play, uh, not quite play up to his potential, he also was just racked with nerves, cramping, which is what happened with him, where he kind of lost his legs there towards the end of the match, is something that often happens when nerves get the better of you and you're using up a lot of energy because of sort of stress and anxiety. So I have to hope at the very least we'll get a better performance out of him. But despite the fact that Alcaraz comes in as the number one seed, anybody saying that Novak Djokovic is not the favorite to win this and get one step closer to the calendar year slam, uh, which, you know, obviously he's hurtling towards after really great performances in, in Melbourne and Paris is just taking crazy pills. They're, they're trying to sell you something because the truth is Djokovic is far and away the favorite. That's not to say he's a, a lock. This is a tricky surface and, you know, anything can happen, but uh, Alcaraz, I wouldn't say if Djokovic is going to lose, it's going to be because of Alcaraz. To turn to the women's draw, which is far more open, I mentioned Venus Williams there at 43, who is the elder stateswoman of women's tennis at the moment. So she was beaten on centre court today in straight sets by Svitolina. I'm kind of curious um, what insight you have into where Venus is in her life, because I, I would think if I had had her career and I was 43 being beaten by younger players, I would find it just infuriating and I would tell myself, my God, if I'd played you at 23, not 43, I would, you wouldn't even be fit to lace my shoes. So she's still out there. She's, she's still doing it. Is this towards the end of the spectrum where we can say, well, Venus just has a, a wonderfully healthy love of tennis and love of playing the sport and why wouldn't you keep playing? It's, it's, it's life is for living. Or is this more of a obsessive, I, if I haven't got tennis, what else have I got in my life? I can't quit or I'm doomed. Uh, what, what's your sense of her relationship with the sport at 43 to be still out there? It's a very good question. And I think much, much, much has been read into Venus Williams because I think you are uh, among a wide array of watchers who have sort of concluded the same thing, which is, you know, I've had a stellar career. I've made all the money I could possibly spend in one lifetime. Uh, my my name is going to be in the record books, regardless of what happens next. You know, why not just retire and kick my feet up and, you know, uh, take it easy. I was really moved by an interview Venus gave to Racket Magazine's podcast host, Renee Stubbs, last year. Or maybe it was two years ago on the on the Racket Magazine podcast. And basically she said, listen, I'm a pragmatist. I still can play. I love to play. I'm going to get wild cards. It's really what I love to do. I love the pension. I love the healthcare. I love the fact that the WTA sort of takes care of the logical and pragmatic needs for her life. And you might think, well, how good could the insurance that the WTA is providing somebody like Venus Williams actually be enough to keep her on the tour? And the truth is she's somebody who I think is thinking about it in X's and O's. She's a very pragmatic thinker. She's very 
straightforward and she's not thinking so much about legacy and ego. I think she's thinking this is something I still enjoy. And for me, the only thing that sort of bothers me about it at this point is you get, you know, like the McEnroe brothers commentating on American TV saying like, oh, well, this is probably your last Wimbledon. It's like, you know what? Venus Williams is going to tell you when she's ready to have her last Wimbledon. And as long as she still gets wild cards into tournaments and people still line up to watch her play, you know, that's, that's, that's her choice to make. Mm. Now, will I say that this is the best, most amazing tennis that she's playing? No, undoubtedly not. And for me, that would be enough to sort of keep me off the court. But again, Venus Williams is better than any of us have been at anything. Uh, you know, so I think she, she kind of gets to the side. Yeah. The women's draw has been talked about as like a trio of contenders. We have our defending champion, Elena Rybakina. There are fitness concerns. We have Polish top seed, Iga Świątek. I was rehearsing the pronunciation there for five Very minutes good. before we spoke. Thank you. <laughs> and second seed, Irina Sabalenka, who was back after the ban on Russian and uh, Belarusian opponents. Is that how you see it? Is it like that? Um, is that is that becoming a big three? It's a good question. And I think absolutely yes, especially on a more neutral surface. On grass, I actually have to say that Iga, out of the three of them, is the least likely to win this thing. Iga Svantec, despite the fact that she has the most majors of that group, has the most well-suited, well-developed all-court game. She doesn't quite have the firepower of Rubakina or Sabalenka. And for that reason, she hasn't really done as well on grass as the other two, obviously, by by leaps and bounds. So this is not Iga Sviantek's tournament to win. She certainly can win it. And that, what I love so much about the women's tour, especially right now, is that it gives us a hint about what the post-Big 3 ATP is going to look like, which is a variety of playing styles, backgrounds, personalities, dispositions, you know, uh, country affiliations, all contending in a way that's actually sort of suspenseful. If anyone but Novak Djokovic wins on the men's side, it'll be a giant surprise. The women's field, as you said, is wide open. That's what I like. I like the fact that we don't know exactly who's going to be lifting the trophy in two weeks' time, that beautiful Venus Rosewater dish. So for me, this is really kind of down to whether Arena Sabalenka will live up to her potential and win this thing. She certainly can. Rubakina, as you noted, has had a rough couple of weeks. She's obviously a great grass court player winning the title last year against Anj Jabir. But she's had some illness going on. It seems like she's not at full strength. So that obviously is not an ideal situation when you're walking into a Grand Slam tournament. And really, Iga doesn't have the game to win this thing. But I'm happy to be wrong if she sort of all of a sudden develops sea legs on that grass. It mm. would be a surprise. She tends to like a slower surface. She doesn't hit anywhere near as hard as the other two. But as I said, she has the experience. She's got the absolute intense mental focus. And it'll be... Not a surprise if she loses, but certainly a big match when she does, uh, assuming that happens. The other real question mark for me is Ans Jabir. Like I mentioned, she was uh, credibly contending in the final last year against Rubakina for about a set and a half, and then it kind of all fell apart. She's got an incredibly varied game. She hits a lot of chip and charge. She really plays the entire dimensionality of the court. And she's somebody who can neutralize the power of a Rubakina or a Sabalenka with her variety, more so than than Iga can on this surface. But she's had a real question mark of a season. Obviously, she was injured for a little bit, and then she's had, you know, I think less than seller results. So the question for me will be less about who ultimately wins the trophy, but more how are these great sort of seismic talents kind of aligning and who's going to bring their best tennis to this fortnight? Yeah. As the more casual tennis uh, fan in this conversation by distance, for me, I much prefer 
that star power. I, I, I much prefer coming to the men's draw and it's Djokovic, shot at history, and can Alcaraz do it? And that's a narrative, for want of a much better word, that straight away, like, I'm on board with. Um, and I, I do take your point, though, on, on you liking that openness of the women's draw because I would watch a lot of golf for my sins. And so, <laughs> like, when it comes to a major, when Wyndham Clark wins the most recent one, I'm kind of okay with that because I was watching when he won the Wells Fargo several weeks ago and I have a sense of him. But I think mm-hmm. the golf uh, fans who just watch the majors are saying, Wyndham Clark, please, <laughs> dull, right. dull, dull. So yeah. it, th- that relationship with star power is kind of interesting. It is. And it's a really good point. I mean, I would say for me, I don't discount your point about star power. I think for a lot of people, you know, the big four, which unfortunately doesn't really include Andy Murray, the fourth really is more Serena Williams. Uh, was the main vehicle for fandom, especially yeah. new fan engagement, adoption, and uh, retention in the last 15 years or so. I think when you weight it so heavily towards the narrative and so far away from the tennis, what you're doing is actually discounting the actual tennis. I don't like a foregone conclusion. I don't like watching a dominant performance very often. Of course, sometimes it's great to watch somebody at the peak of their powers just commanding the space and transcending, you know, time and physical limitations. That's cool. It's cool to witness. It's not that exciting if the field just kind of fails to show up and one guy wins everything. We've yeah. seen what the big three, all of them, look like when they're in the ecstasy of victory. We've seen them, you know, be good sports. We've seen them be sort of very corporate and pat each other on the back and talk about greatness. It's all a little dull for me. It's been dull for quite a while. And I think the GOAT debate, while I respect it and I understand that there's something very simple that a lot of fans, especially new fans, like to grasp when they're talking about, well, they have the most, so they're the greatest. Mm. Well, maybe. But for me, it's how do these athletes make you feel? For me, watching Francesca Schiavone win the 2011 French Open as a journeywoman who was 31, I believe, at the time, nobody expected her to be there. She summoned her most courageous, amazing tennis and walked away with the trophy in Paris in a way that was unexpected, but also kind of the height of our sport. I'll take that any day of the week, not because it's somebody new, but because you're seeing somebody write history in their image. For me, Djokovic is expected to, to march forward, who you might get to 30 slams by the end. Is he the greatest? By grand slam count in singles, sure. By overall match count in all titles and all events, mixed doubles, doubles and singles, Martina Navratilova has everyone beat by a mile. Is it who's the coolest? I don't know. That's Borg, Arthur Ashe. Uh, Yannick Noah? Is it somebody who's the most stylish, the most elegant, the most icy cold? You know, this is all what makes sports really interesting. Yeah. And I think if we, I, I'm not taking anything away from people who like to see history in a very binary way be made. Mm. On the other hand, there's a, a lot of different types of history. And I think we're going to look back on this big four era and think that was really a great star powered time, but also the narratives got really simplistic and tennis itself didn't do a good job of marketing its own sport because it had these, you know, very easy, uh, I think assets to deploy. And I think the sport became lazy because of it. Instead of saying, Hey, listen, we have this incredible sport. Anybody can beat anybody on any given day. Mm. That's incredible. And let's focus on how great that is and all these comers and all of this, you know, traveling circus going to the most glamorous places and beautiful courts and all mm. of, across the globe. That's always been what the tennis that I watch, which is why I'd take a Yannick Noah winning or a Mary Pierce or, a, you know, a, a Marion Bartoli over somebody winning their 10th, 15th 
20th trophy in a row. It's yes. just, uh, you know, I want the variety. It's amazing listening to you because the, the parallels, there's obviously something in human nature that dictates all of this because the parallels between a, a sport which anyone can win on any, any given day and then the reliance on superstardom. I mean, you're just, and, and then the vacuum afterwards, you're basically talking golf, Tiger Woods there as well. It's And, and <laughs> right. like around the same timeline. So, um, by the way, I presume the most stylish tennis player is Roger Federer or is who, who is Caitlin's choice there? Of the greatest of the the big three, I I I don't, I've. I'm talking elegance, by the way, not his um his regal clothes that he used to wear at Wimbledon. I don't know. I think the the most elegant is probably Stefan Edberg. I okay. love the way that he he chipped and charged. Maybe it's uh, I don't know the icy cold Chris Evert, who has outside of Rafa Nadal the best record on clay ever just a mind-boggling amount of just icy cold complete uh dominance yeah i mean for me if you only talk about the big three and you only sort of contextualize what one facet of our game these aren't people playing doubles they're not people playing mixed in a lot of cases they're not going out and being activists you know 50 years ago billy jean king won women's singles mixed doubles women's doubles and founded the wta creating a league for women to play competitive sports that has forever changed the fate of women across the globe yeah. for half a decade, sorry, half a century. That That's the greatest. That's the greatest. <laughs> that's the most elegant performance. That's the coolest thing that I can imagine. Not only because I think wheelchair tennis is cool and legends tennis is cool and junior tennis is cool and the mixed and doubles events are cool, but because it has to have some greater meaning. Okay. You know, what's one movement that Novak Djokovic created? Even Federer with his elegance and his, you know, beautiful ground strokes. Are we going to remember anything off the court that he's done? I don't know. True. You know? You can make me sound very superficial now if I just say I like his backhand, <laughs> so I'll move on. Um, can I, uh, I want to get your sense of the politics here because I think at a glance we know Wimbledon banned the Russian and Belarusian players last year and I guess it's, it's, it's bubbling away because there are so many players from that part of the world on circuit. But I don't, I don't pay too much heed to it really until um, yesterday in the Sunday Times I, I don't know if you've seen it and, and maybe you've seen her speak already but for people who haven't in the Sunday Times yesterday uh, Daria Kazatkina is the Russian number one she's around number 11 world ranking she's won six WTA titles and it was just the most brilliant interview it, it started wherever they were talking to her with the, a Ukrainian fan came up to her a Russian and gave her a big hug and thanked her so that was kind of an interesting start to the interview and it turns out over the last year, she had condemned the war, condemned Putin and come out as gay. And so just one quote from her amongst many interesting quotes. It's unsafe for me now to go home with the regime that we have as a gay person who opposes the war. It's just not possible to go back. But I don't regret it. Not even one percent. When the war started and everything turned to hell, I was overwhelmed and I decided F it all. I couldn't hide anymore. I wanted to say my position on the war and my sexuality, which was tough coming from a country where being gay is not accepted. But it felt like a backpack of stones on my shoulders and I had to throw it off. Afterwards, I faced a few consequences, but the only thing that worried me was my parents, that they were fine, they're still in Russia, and that they are proud of me. And again, you know, it's an amazing interview. Her parents sold their house when she was 12 to fund her tennis, by the way. Um, no pressure, kid. Uh, but she's made nine million since, so she's doing okay. But um, she was saying, for instance, that the any Ukrainian players out there, they're still not shaking her hand. One player sort of half gave her a thumbs up at Roland Garros. Like... Looking in from afar, I thought, well, that's a bit harsh. She's condemned the war, maybe shake her hand. But um, 
it just gave me a, a good sense of how the lived experience for these players. I'm not really thinking too much about the politics, but that is really obviously bubbling away. Completely right. And, you know, if you were to ask me who's the most elegant player currently, it's Daria Kasakina. Not only is her tennis game amazing, but activism, saying, you know, what she said to the Sunday Mail, what she has said on our podcast, what she's talked about um, on her own YouTube series, to me is everything that you just said. It's it's an indication of this lived experience of these athletes sharing a locker room, sharing essentially a workplace. Um, as far as I know, and I don't know, uh, in, you know, incredibly thoroughly, um, almost every single athlete who is from Russia or Belarus, Russia, wants no part of this war. Most of them who have felt safe enough have condemned it. Nobody's condemned it as much as she has because she's left and she's decided to be, I think, the most courageous version of a human being possible, which is incredible. But truly, you know, I think whether you want to get into the politics of, you know, whether the All England correct in banning these athletes, certainly I, I understand why they felt like they needed to take a stand. But on the other hand, you know, the athletes in a lot of cases are not safe to speak out. You know, if you look at what um, you know, some of the Chinese athletes, when asked about the disappearance of Peng Shui, what kind of position they would be in. If if you look at other sort of industries and Chinese dissidents who have spoken out against the fascist regime at home, they've been disappeared or kidnapped or had their entire bank accounts frozen. So I don't think we can overstate how these athletes are grappling with something that is far greater than themselves. And some of them are prepared to be brave and make, you know, an astounding statement like you just read. And some of them aren't prepared to do that for various reasons, but I haven't heard a single uh, piece of evidence to suggest that anybody is pro-Putin or pro-war from the Russian or Belarusian camp. And again, I haven't mm. thoroughly investigated this with the, you know, the lens that a, that some of my journalistic colleagues could or should be doing p- potentially. But I think, you know, it speaks to the fact that this is a fraught time. Yeah. And it actually, to me, is one of the bonuses of tennis. Tennis touches every part of the globe, as does football, as do a few sports that get us from favelas to luxury high rises and everywhere in between. Tennis is a truly global sport and it's the only one that has been more often on the right side of history than it hasn't, and that has paid women somewhat approximating what the men can earn. And for that reason, it has found itself caught in the crosshairs of a lot of really interesting political conversations. To me, that's a bonus. That's a, that's a plus. That's a feature, not a bug. And that's why tennis to me is so profound because not only what these amazing athletes do on the court, but also just the, the occasion of what this traveling circus and all of the attendant stuff that goes with it gives us opportunities to discuss. And I'm really just honestly blown away by Daria Kasakina specifically yeah. um, because of how just absolutely brave she has been and continues to be. And so, you know, all I can say is hats off because that to me is that's that's the, the greatest of all time has now been answered. And it's not about trophies. Hmm. It's about what you're using your prominence to, to do. Hmm. 26 years old. It's very impressive. Uh, we will touch base, I'm sure, over the next fortnight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine. Always great to have her on the show. I should mention as well on the hurling front. So the hurling pod is live at the Board Gosh Energy Theatre in Dublin this July. And you were very much invited. So it's July 20th at the Board Gosh Energy Theatre. An exclusive off-air event. Tickets are limited. So offtheball.com forward slash events is where you need to go. Thrilled to say all proceeds go to charity, the Dylan Quirk Foundation and Focus Ireland. And you will, of course, have Will with James Skell and Paul Murphy. And they will be joined by special guest for the evening, Joe Canning. So it's a brilliant lineup. 
and you're all very much invited. So that's July the 20th, Board Gosh Energy Theatre, off the ball.com forward slash events. And Board Gosh Energy are proud sponsors of the All-Ireland Senior Hurling Championship.